So uh, according to Isaiah, and also according to the Apostle Paul, and Jesus, and pretty much all the writers of Scripture, uh, the biggest problem right now in your life, whatever you came in here thinking that it was, um, your, your biggest problem is, uh, is the fact that you worship the wrong thing. Is that uh, we all worship the creation. We worship uh, these little things that are described in this passage as an idol. And uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that the basic human problem is that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created rather than the creator. And I think he might have even got some of that language from Isaiah. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's what Isaiah calls these idols. And we have worshipped and served something that we created or the creation rather than the creator. And so that's what Isaiah is talking about in this passage. And uh, it's a mockery. Clearly, it's sarcastic. There's irony. Um, it's meant to uh, create a kind of a nervous laughter from people. Yeah, he's showing the, the foolishness, the idiocy, the craziness of this guy who is worshiping uh, something that he just made. And, uh, and he's bowing down to this thing that he just made and asking this thing to deliver him. And uh, Isaiah is intentionally mocking that. And in 6 through 9, um, Isaiah gives us kind of the antidote to that. He tells us about the one who should be worshipped. And he calls him the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, which is basically saying the God of the angel armies. Host just means the army of angels. So that is who we should be worshipping, the Creator. And then in 9 through 20, it's a mockery of what is not to be worshipped, namely idols. All who fashion idols are nothing, verse 9. In other words, there's nothing really behind uh, that idol. It's like the Wizard of Oz. There's nothing really behind the curtain. It's, uh, it's a lie. It's a fabrication. And so I want to look at those two things. False worship, which is worship that is centered on the creation that God made. And then true worship, which is worship of the creator who made all things. And it seems so obvious, but it's clearly not obvious because our hearts are deluded, as Isaiah says. So far, uh, first of all, false worship. And I know, I know a lot more about this than the other one, but um, I'll try to explain the other one mostly through what Isaiah says. I, I love um, movies uh, about the future that are kind of dystopian. Sometimes they're post-apocalyptic, not necessarily, but uh, I love uh, Blade Runner. There's a new one coming out, I think, this fall. I love uh, the books Brave New World in 1984. I, I like the movie Brazil. All those movies that show the future, I love the, the way they imagine technology. Um, I like the way that they have these giant cities that you could never even imagine. Um, the architecture. I love the, the, the fact that the government is always massive in these movies. It's just huge. It's taken over the world. So this gigantic government. I love those parts of those movies. But in a lot of those movies, there's something very important about the human condition that is missing. In fact, almost all of those movies. Um, namely, that we are worshiping creatures. I mean, how many of those movies do you see where they actually d depict um, what worship is like in the future or in the post-apocalyptic world? There is one exception that is my favorite movie of the last two or I think it's made two or three years ago. And that is uh, Mad Max Fury Road. And I haven't mentioned this uh, in a few uh, years, so I get, I get to, to mention Mad Max again. I would highly recommend that you watch that. The first two are not nearly as good as the third one. But in that movie, uh, which is in the future, after, after a uh, nuclear war, 
Um, it depicts this guy who is uh, Immortan Joe is his name. He's like the emperor. He, and, and all the people bow down to him. He gives them the water of life and they bow down to him. And then not only that, he has these minions. I think they're actually his children. Uh, they're called the war boys. And there's tons of them. He has all these different wives. And these war boys, uh, are his, they're his army, and they, they intentionally live to be martyrs for him. And what they want most in life is to um, be like a kamikaze pilot. And as they do that, they, 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 um, they want to go to Valhalla, as they say. It's kind of like back to the Norse mythology. And so when they're about to die, they put their hands like this, and they say, witness me, as they kill someone on behalf of Immortan Joe. And um, it's, it's really powerful that they recognize that, that empires are based on worship. Because every human being is a worshiper. Even after a nuclear war, people are going to be worshiping something. Could be a, a human being like that, uh, like the Pharaoh. Uh, Caesar was worshipped as a god. Um, but it's often not things like that. It could even be something lower than a human. And in this case, it is this little statue that this person has made out of wood. And uh, Isaiah goes into some detail, quite a bit of detail, describing it. And I think he keeps going over it and over it and over it so that maybe by the third time you realize how absurd this is. Verse 13, the carpenter stretches a line, marks it out with a pencil, shapes it with planes, marks it with a compass, shapes it into the figure of a man. And then in verse 15, uh, he takes part of this tree and he warms himself. So he's cut down this tree, half of it he's over here. And he's made a fire with the wood. And then over here, um, he is making a god and he's bowing down to it. And you see how utterly ridiculous it is to think that this one tree, on the one hand, could be something that you eat or you make fire with. On the other hand, it's something that you bow down and worship to. And some commentaries even said that Isaiah must not have had any experience with idols. Because clearly, that's a caricature of someone um, that that would never really have happened in life. That in, in, in reality, surely no one would be that stupid to, to do something like that. But um, then you think about, uh, I think it is, a, it is kind of an absurd depiction of it, like kind of the, the, you know, the extreme version. But I think um, there, in more subtle ways, we, we all do this kind of thing. I was reading, and I thought about this because I was preaching on this passage, I was reading about a guy in Key Largo. You know, the Florida Keys got just smashed by Hurricane Irma, and uh, this guy was sailing around the world in a 41-foot catamaran. And of course, uh, he came right to Key Largo when Irma hit, and then he had to uh, evacuate to Miami. Then he saw pictures of what uh, the boats looked like in the Keys, and if you saw them, they're just all over the highway. They're you know, in trees on top of buildings. And so the, uh, the paper, uh, the Miami paper interviewed him, and he said, if my boat is destroyed, I am lost. My greatest fear in life is that something happens to my boat. And I, I kind of understand that. When I read that, I felt a lot of sympathy for him. But then I was thinking about this passage, and it just made me realize how crazy that statement is. Um, think about what he's saying. He's saying that my boat, without that, I would be a lost human being. And he might not have meant that completely literally, but he meant something very... He used the word lost for a reason. And then he went on to say that my greatest fear in life would be to lose a big piece of wood essentially is what a boat is and you know you can if you love boats you might feel you know that that guy might really feel close to your heart but again it's just crazy how our hopes and dreams and our affections our emotions our longings get tied to things 
And it says in verse 20, a deluded heart has led him astray. Both the guy with the boat and then also the guy making the little statue. And so the the question for the day for you is to think about uh, what is your boat? Um, And it could be a cluster of things. It's not necessarily one thing. But um, what would make you feel lost if you were to lose that thing? What would make you feel lost if you didn't have that thing anymore? Like you would be, and you wouldn't know what to do next. You would really not even know uh, your next move in life. Or what is your greatest fear? So maybe it's a house. Uh, it could be a job. It could be a combination of things. It could be a pet. A really beloved animal is an amazingly powerful thing. And so people... Um, they can, that can be their greatest fear in life. Or if they lose that pet, they can not know what to do uh, for quite a while. It could be your savings. You know, people are just geared in different ways through our experiences, through our genetics. It could be your ability to run, your exercise. It could be a, a limb, your arm. It could be your, your mind. A lot of people I know, um, people who have achieved a lot with their minds, that is their greatest fear, Alzheimer's or dementia or something like that. Um, but think about what it is that you would most uh, feel lost without, some created thing. You know, even a, a close friend or a family member or um, a spouse, I've seen couples, we've all seen couples, where they, they literally, they, just, they live for the other person, and that is their life. And again, you know, if you, if you were to lose a spouse, of course, that's deeply painful, and uh, we would all be incredibly sympathetic. But, but that is not God, nor are your children. And um, the great novelist uh, Dostoevsky, I just read this book by him called The, the, the Demons. The, the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky said, The one essential condition of human existence is that a man should always be able to bow down before something infinitely great. If men are deprived of the infinitely great, they will not go on living and will die of despair. Like the guy, I guess, in Key Largo, if he lost his boat. But Dostoevsky saw in his day in Russia, uh, in the mid-1800s, this was happening. People were losing the infinitely great, and they were turning to things that were not infinitely great. And um, he sees this as leading to despair. And um, I think an analogy might be, you know, if you go to uh, a Mexican restaurant and you're really, really hungry, it's a bad thing to do. If you go to Mi Pueblo or La Carreta or La Botana and you're really, really hungry, you know what's going to happen is those chips come out there. And then three servings later, uh, you don't even really want to eat. And now the, and there's no nutrition. They're fried corn. And now you've got this beautiful meal in front of you and you're just kind of sick. Uh, Isaiah says, the things they delight in do not profit. They lack nourishment. The idol that you go to and nibble on is thin and insubstantial. And eventually, uh, he says, it's nothing. It's ashes. He feeds on ashes. Verse 20. So imagine someone sitting down to a plate of food. Like they've completely burned the pizza or the bread. And they sit down to a pile of crisp, black, flaky, brittle ashes. And they eat that. That's what Isaiah is saying. You do when you turn to that idol and, and worship and nibble on it. So false worship uh, makes you kind of lose your mind. Is there not a lie in my right hand? Verse 20. And again, it's very hard to see this. Very hard to see this if you're not aware of something greater. 
if, if your horizon is not farther out, um, then everything near seems like that's what really matters. And uh, what the Bible says is that we were created for something that is massive and something wonderful and something entirely fulfilling. And none of us have even begun to scratch the surface of this thing, this being, um, this amazing person that uh, we know so little of. And so that's why idols seem so important and so uh, alluring and satisfying. But I mean, how could a boat produce enough wonder and enough joy for a creature like you? A creature made as magnificent as you in the very image of God, how could you bow down to something smaller than yourself? That's what Isaiah is saying. How can you um, give all of your uh, adoration and affection to something smaller than you? Um, imagine a bunch of uh, you know, Great Danes, a very majestic dog, um, in a circle around a mouse on a throne just bowing down. And it's so absurd, but that's what we do with idols, is we gather around these things. I mean, a football game, and people are going at that crazy? Um, it's just absurd. When you stand back and think about uh, the way that we idolize things, it, that creatures as great as us would give our heart to that. Psalm 115.5 says, those who make idols will be like them. And what that means, I think, is that you were made like a mirror to reflect what you worship back to the world. Image of God, we're like a mirror that images God back to people. So if you're worshiping something, people can see it in your eyes, in your conversation, in your apparel, in your car. So think of a Carolina fan um, who's just constantly wearing the championship t-shirt everywhere. And they have uh, the custom license plate, the bumper stickers. Uh, they always talk about you know, the team. They have a dog named Tar Heel or something like that. <laughs> Jeremiah says uh, they follow worthless idols and become worthless themselves. Can't think of a better illustration <laughs> as a Wake Forest fan. <laughs> I got a witness in fact, <laughs> uh, a Carolina fan. That could apply to Duke. That could apply to any number of other schools. Uh, David Foster Wallace gave this graduation address at Kenyon College in 2005. It's really famous. It's been made into a book. It's so famous. But you can also find it on the internet. David Foster Wallace, who's dead now, an incredible novelist. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. If you worship your body and your beauty and your sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being as smart as possible, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. So false worship is inherently unstable. It's unstable, it's unprofitable, it degrades us. That's point one, false worship. Now, the good news is that Isaiah gives us this picture of true worship, the worship of the creator. And he says in verse six, I am the first and I am the last. And I know of no other author of scripture who gives us a more exalted depiction of God than Isaiah. Because he saw God back in chapter 6 on the throne. 
He had this vision of God that never left him. I think that John, the, um, the author of, uh, of Revelation, would probably be right there with Isaiah in terms of a constant depiction of the exaltation of God's holiness. Because he also had a, depiction, uh, a vision of God on the island of Patmos. But, and, and John loves this phrase too. John gets a lot of his best material from Isaiah. I am the first and I am the last. That's what God is saying here. Now it sounds like what he's saying is, I, uh, I was there when the Big Bang happened, and I am there when the Second Coming happened, and all the time in between. So I am there at every single moment in history. And that's true, but he's saying more than that. Uh, what he's saying here is, I am before time started. I am after time ends. I am outside of creation. I am greater than time. Um, I oversee the entire creation. There's this very famous distinction that, uh, that the Bible makes between the creator and the creature. And really, Isaiah's whole idea about worship is founded on this distinction. But there's an infinite gap between the creator of the universe and the creation. And again, this kind of seems like common sense, but I think part, is that, part of the reason it does is because we're in the Western world where this, is, this, is, this has been an assumption for a long time in the Western world. But uh, there is an infinite gap between the one who made time and space and then anything in time and space. That's the creator-creature distinction. And what the Bible denies is that there's this gradual, gradual uh, kind of great chain of being from the bottom to the top, this progression from uh, mineral, plant, animal, human, maybe demon, angel, archangel, uh, something else, you know, semi, demigod, God. Now, a lot of people think of it like that, like a spectrum. And you can kind of go, you know, from one to a hundred. But for the Bible, it's either zero or infinity. It's either you're the creator or you're a creature. And pretty much every creature down here is about the same in comparison to the creator. For instance, the devil is not a rival of God, is not God's equal, not even close to God's equal. That's actually a heresy called dualism. The creator is infinitely greater than any creature. There was a really, really weird Christian uh, artist named Carmen in the 90s. And his weirdest song was called The Champion. And uh, this uh, song, The Champion, depicts Jesus in a boxing match with Satan. So it's kind of like, imagine Mayweather and McGregor all over again. And you know, we know Mayweather's going to win, but McGregor is really, he could take him a few rounds. That's kind of the way this song goes. And I quote, uh, a persona appears, and he reads it in this kind of bizarre uh, tone of voice with music in the background. It's almost like he's rapping. This is early 90s Christian. A persona appeared in the center of the ring. God the Father will oversee the duel. Opening the book of life, each grandstand hushed in awe. The Father says, now here are the rules. You'll be wounded for their transgressions, and they'll be healed by your stripes. The devil shook. He screams, sickness is my specialty. I hate that healing junk. God said, shut your face. I wrote the book. <laughs> now, I think that's bad art. That might be your favorite song. I'm sorry. But when I heard that, I almost lost my faith. I was a new Christian. And it was like, this is not the Beatles. And um, it's uh, not only, I think, bad art, but theologically, it's very questionable that Satan and Jesus are in a boxing match and that maybe... Maybe Jesus could lose because they're kind of like this or maybe like even like that. But look at Isaiah. He says in verse six, beside me, there is no God. He asks rhetorically in verse seven, who is like me? No one. Of 
course, is the answer. In verse 9, is there a God beside me? No, there is no God beside me. Um, True worship is the worship of that being, of the one who is outside of time, outside of space, who wrote the whole story. And when you worship that, uh, it does not degrade your soul. It is not a lie. It is not ashes. It is not nothingness. It strengthens you. It reinforces you. It gives you power. It gives you fearlessness. Nothing takes away fear like worshiping this God. Look in verse 8. Fear not, nor be afraid. Which my friend told me right before the service, that is the most frequently commanded thing by God in the Bible. He says, fear not more than anything else to his people. Which obviously implies we're very afraid. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? So if false worship makes you unstable, anxious, and weak, then true worship makes you fearless and strong. Uh, The exact opposite. Takes away your fear. Now, why would it take away your fear? Because it takes away your fear because Isaiah says right there, because the author has told from of old what will happen. A lot of Isaiah is just prophecy after prophecy after prophecy about what's going to happen. All true. All have come true. And so the author knows how the story is going to go. And so we don't have to be afraid when he tells us something. If the author, uh, if, you know, if Shakespeare told Hamlet what was going to happen in Act 3, and Hamlet knew it was the author telling him that, he would not be afraid. Because it's the very author of the play. And here's God breaking into the play and telling the characters, you don't need to be afraid. I've got a plan. It's going to be okay. And only the author of the story could command that and that make any sense at all. If anyone other than the author said, fear not, then they're really not to be listened to. For instance, I often, you know, I like to tell my family, um, it's going to be okay. Don't, you don't need to worry. So if Margie's um, nervous about our dog being sick or the children are in trouble or I have uh, health problems, um, whatever it is, I'll often say, kind of without thinking, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. You know, don't, don't freak out, don't worry. It's going to be okay. And it's really not uh, very loving. It's not very thoughtful. It's more like just to, you know, to keep going back so I can go back to my book or something like that. And she rightfully kind of will look at me sideways and say, well, you know, how would you know that? You know, who are you to, to command me not to be afraid or to, to think that it's going to be okay? You didn't write the story. You have no basis for saying that. And we do that to each other uh, so frequently that we kind of forget that God actually does have basis for making that command. It's like those T-shirts that said no fear on them. There was a whole line of apparel. Um, they were bumper stickers. They were T-shirts. No fear. Uh, it's funny, that, that uh, company actually filed for bankruptcy in 2011, so they actually did have reason to be afraid. But the reason I didn't like those shirts is because it didn't give you any reason why. Uh, why would I not be afraid? The world is a scary place. People die all the time. Accidents happen all the time. Uh, you, you're giving me no reason whatsoever not to be afraid. But if the Creator says no fear, you know, no fear dash God, then that makes a lot of sense. because. Now we've got the one who knows and wrote the story telling us not to be afraid. And only worshiping God can take away that fear. If you're worshiping a boat, you have a lot of reason to be afraid. If you're worshiping a person, if you're worshiping your body, you have all sorts of reason to be afraid. Because that could be taken away from you. It will be taken away from you. And in fact, if you're worshiping anything else, the more rational you are about it, the more you think about life hard 
and you kind of dig in and lock in with your thoughts, the more you're going to be afraid because you're going to realize more and more, I could definitely lose that thing. So the more rational you become, the more you'll be afraid. Anything less than the creator that you worship, and there's going to be fear. But with God, when you worship the Lord of hosts, verse 6, the first and the last, verse 6, the rock, verse 8, it's exactly the opposite. Because now you might feel afraid, but when you sit down and you think really hard, do I really have reason to be afraid? Like scripturally. Uh, what I know about reality, do I have reason to be afraid? And the answer is no. So the harder you think, the more you meditate, the less anxious you get, instead of the more anxious you get. And when the object of your adoration and joy is the creator, when your heart is just soaring, as happens at times, with the supremacy of God, uh, then, as you know, anxiety just kind of vanishes and and futility disappears and fear melts away. And the reason is, again, because have I not told you from of old and declared it? Verse 8. That's the reason he gives. You don't need to be afraid. I have got the story in my hands. I've written the story. I know it's going to happen. You don't have to be afraid. The most famous moment in baseball history, probably. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I've heard people like George Will say this. Um, Game three of the 1932 World Series. And it's sometimes known as, uh, quote, the called shot. The called shot. And uh, Babe Ruth, maybe the greatest of all time, the king, he's up to bat, the original king. And uh, the count is two and two now. Very important moment in the game. The Cubs fans are just heckling him. They were throwing things at him. They were making fun of his wife. It was, a, it was really, a, the, even back, the, back then, the fans were worse than today. They're more rude than today. And so he kind of stepped out of, uh, the, of the batter's box. And he, he pointed with his bat to a, a flagpole at center field. Pointed right to the, to the flagpole. Stepped back in the box. And if I were the pitcher, I would not have, I would have just, you know, thrown, a, just pitch around. But he steps back into the box, curveball, and, you, you know, you know what happens. That he, he just crushes it 440 feet right at the flagpole. And um, it's the called shot. And if, if you are a Yankees fan at that point, you're going to feel like we can beat anybody because we've got this guy who's calling all the shots, who can do anything on our team. Uh, the king is on our team. Obviously, that's not true. But what I'm saying is that it is true when, that when God is with you, when Christ is with you, um, he calls all the shots. He, you don't have to be afraid when this guy is on your team. When you worship Jesus, the first and the last, the one who spans time, the Lord of all the angel armies, and if you know that he's calling the shots, then you have every reason to be confident that he has the future in your hands. And, you know, we know as, uh, as those of us who believe that... Uh, you know, the, the ultimate shot that he pointed to, what the, the one that he called, was uh, when he pointed to the, the cross 700 years later. Um, Isaiah was pointing to the future, pointing to a hill. Um, Jonah's going to preach on this uh, in a few weeks, uh, pointing to that hill outside of Jerusalem where he was crucified. And he was like, that's where I'm going. That's, that's going to be the future right there. And... Um, and this is, remember, this is the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, that is making that call. And four times in the book of Revelation, uh, John calls Jesus the first and the last. It's sometimes written the Alpha and the Omega, but it's the same thing. It's just like A and Z in English. Alpha, first letter in the Greek, alphabet, Omega, the last. So 
the first and the last. And uh, this first and last becomes a redeemer. That's what Isaiah is saying here. He's going to redeem his people. And a kinsman redeemer was a relative who uh, made a huge sacrifice, paid a lot of money, uh, sacrificed his family and his well-being to get some cousin, aunt, or uncle out of slavery. It was a part of the Old Testament law, the kinsman redeemer. So if my niece, nephew, brother, um, uncle was in big trouble, then I would, um, sp- I am called to spend money to get them out of that trouble and, and bring them into my family. That's where redeemer comes from. That's where the word redeemer comes from. And, and so we are worshiping the first and the last, the creator of the universe, who says, I'm going to pay a lot of money. I'm going to sacrifice my well-being. I'm going to become a creature. I'm going to go from being the creator to the creature. And I'm going to do that to, to get you out of slavery, out of the slavery of your worship, uh, out of you who worship everything but me. I'm going to become a creature, turn to ash, become nothing in order to buy you out of that slavery. And um, that's what uh, we do at this table is we... We uh, dramatize that every single week because we think that uh, what we call the gospel, the good news, is that central to, to worship. The, the, cent- the center of all worship is really what we act out in this meal, um, what I hope I've talked about, which is what we call, again, the gospel. And the gospel is that uh, on the night that he was betrayed, uh, the creator, who had become a creature, uh, took bread.